the Blaze Radio Network. On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's greatest country in the world. How are you? It's Saturday. Beautiful Saturday. Hope you're having a great one so far. Really glad you're here. So I want to talk about the uh, tax uh, tax reform plan from President Trump. I don't want to talk about the details of it because you've heard all that already. And honestly, there there aren't many details. But in general, it's it's very good. I give it a very good. It's not excellent. Uh, it's not perfect. But it's very good, especially cutting the corporate tax from 35%, the highest in the developed world, to uh, 15%, which would be one of the lowest. Uh, so that's excellent. Uh, and there's some other really good parts of it, eh, pluses and minuses. But in, in, in general, I think it's very, very good. Um, instead of, of the details, I want to talk about why it probably won't pass. Uh, I want to talk about why it's easier for Democrats to convince people to be against the tax bill and why it's harder for Republicans to convince people to be in support of tax reform. Because I, I want to, I mean, let me repeat that just so we're on the same page. I want to explain why it's easier for Democrats to, to convince people to be against tax reform and why it's harder for Republicans to convince people to be for it. It's something called loss aversion. So I read this article the other day about Uber, how they have, and they've had for years, a team of behavioral psychologists on staff. Why? Because if you drive for Uber, you don't, you're not an employee of Uber. You're an independent contractor. You don't, you don't technically work for Uber. So the people at Uber can't tell you what to do. You're not an employee. So because they can't tell you what to do, it's, it's tough for them because they want you to go over there and they want you to work these days and these hours, but they can't force you because you don't really work for them. So they've hired a bunch of behavioral psychologists to try and figure out ways to influence their drivers to do what they want them to do. Does that make sense? So they do a couple different things. First, they've turned the whole thing. If you're a driver of Uber, they've turned the whole thing into a video game. So there's something in video games called the ludic loop, L-U-D-I-C. Think Candy Crush. Any, pretty much any game on your phone, your cell phone is, is a ludic loop game 
And that's when the reward is just out of your reach. It's like, it's like oh, you're so close, but it's, it's like, just, just. so you keep playing. Slot machine is a ludic loop game. So with Uber, you'll be driving and uh, they can tell when you, you would usually stop in the evening or whatever. And uh, they, they see that you've made $34. So they'll send you an alert, like a video game, and it'll say, you are $6 away from making 40 bucks. Are you sure you want to stop driving now? And you go, oh, hmm. oh I'm so close to 40. I'm so, now, 40 bucks isn't totally arbitrary number, right? But you're like, oh, I'm so close to achieving it. Um, all right, I'll keep going. And it gets your competitive juices flowing, right? So it just puts this, this little carrot just right in front of you and keeps you going just a little bit more because that's what they want you to do. Uber obviously wants you to be driving longer. They also have something called the Netflix effect. Uh, if we've all been there, you're watching an episode on Netflix. And then what happens when the episode's over? 10, 9, 8, 7, 3, oh, start, next one starts. And you're like, oh, oh, all right, fine. I'll watch another one. <laughs> so it, it's called post play in Netflix, right? When one episode ends, then it just counts down to 10 and then automatically starts the next one. So with Uber, when you're two minutes away from dropping someone off, they'll send you an alert telling you about someone else who needs a ride nearby before your current ride is over. And that keeps you going, right? So, so you pick someone up. You're like, okay, this is my last ride of the day. And uh, I'm going to drop them off. And then I'm just going to go home. Well, right before you drop them off, you get another alert about someone nearby. So you're like, oh, I was going to stop. But they're right here. Okay, I'll just get one more. And they keep doing that over and over and over again. Just like Netflix keeps you up till four in the morning watching episodes over and over and over again. Okay, so th- th- these are just things that the behavioral psychologists have come up with to influence their drivers. This is the one I want to talk about here that relates to politics. Loss aversion. So we human beings dislike losing something way more than we like gaining something. Let me say that again. We dislike losing way more than we like gaining. And this is true for almost everyone. So the pain you feel from losing a hundred dollars is way greater than the happiness you feel from winning a hundred dollars. Um, what was the most recent sports? Thing? Let's say March Madness, right? Recently. So let's say you get to the final game of March Madison's between you and some other guy, right? And, and which is, which no one, no one can relate to this because it's illegal to bet on uh, March Madness. So no one would actually do this, but let's just say people were betting on March Madness tournaments and you lose the pain you feel from losing the hundred dollars that you would have won. If your team won at the last game, the pain you feel is on a scale one to 10. It's a 10. It's like, it's like a huge, like, oh, I can't believe I lost the money. I was going to win. It's unbelievable. I lost. I feel so bad. And you're miserable the whole rest of the day. The joy you get from winning the hundred dollars, the other guy, the joy he gets is like a six. It's like, oh, cool, I won a hundred bucks. I'll give you one more example. If I gave you a hundred dollars right now, if I just gave you a hundred bucks, you'd be like, oh, cool, wow, thanks, and you'd be like a six on the happy scale. Like, oh, that's awesome, hundred bucks, cool. If I stole a hundred dollars from you, you'd be furious. You'd be a ten on the ticked off scale. You'd want to punch me in the face. What are you stealing? Me? Right, so the pain we feel from losing is way worse than the joy we feel from, from gaining. So 
How does Uber use this? They'll take a driver who drives on Tuesdays. And they started off, Uber started off saying, hey, if you drive on Friday nights, because that's what Uber wants people to do. They want them to drive when there's more people who need rides, right? So they'll say, hey, listen, if you drive on Friday nights, you could make $15 an hour more. And someone reads that and they say, mm, okay, but I don't know. Tuesday's better for me. I'd rather do something else on Friday nights. So they don't really, it doesn't really change their behavior. They still drive on Tuesdays. But then Uber started saying, hey, you're losing $15 an hour by driving on Tuesdays instead of Fridays. And way more people changed their, their driving uh, from Tuesday to, thir- to Fridays. Because the idea of losing, like I'm losing money by not driving on Fridays? What? No, I don't want to lose it. And it convinces people to go drive. So the question is, what motivates people more? Seeing gains or fearing losses? Definitely fearing losses. So what does this have to do with politics? If you want to convince people to support a policy, you have to pitch it to them in terms of what they will lose by not supporting it. Let's do Obamacare first. Who's going to win the PR game of repealing Obamacare? The Republicans who say, hey, everyone, pass our bill, support our bill, because it's going to be way better. Healthcare is going to be better. Health insurance is going to be better. You're going to save money. It'll be great. Or the Democrats who say, oh, no, no, do not support this bill, because if you do, you will lose your insurance. You will lose your doctor. You will lose this. You will lose that. And it's going to be way worse for you and for everyone else. Democrats win every time. Let's flip it around. Second Amendment. This is why people get riled up, rightfully so, about every gun regulation. Because a regulation on guns is a loss of something. Whether the government's regulating a type of gun or a part of gun or an accessory to a gun or a type of ammunition or something. And when they regulate something, you're losing it. And people don't like losing things. They don't like losing their ability to even possibly buy a gun. Like, so, so you may not have one, right? But you like the idea that you could go buy one if you, right? So, so even the idea that the government may make that harder, it, it's taking away an opportunity for you and you're losing something because of it. And that's what gets people fired up. It's the loss aversion really motivates people. And that's why people get, get riled up against um, Second Amendment regulations. So let's bring it to taxes now. Hopefully this has all made sense. Republicans are going to talk tax cuts and they're going to pitch it to the American people. And they're going to say, support these tax cuts and you're going to make a lot more money. You're going to get get to keep a lot of your money. Now, to me, to you, that makes perfect sense. That's all the argument I need. <laughs> oh, great. Done. That sounds awesome. Of course, I want more of my money. And like, it's easy to overlook everything I just talked about with loss aversion because for you, a conservative, who's more inclined to support tax cuts anyway? When I say, hey, you get to keep more of your money with a tax cut, that's all you need. That's awesome. Perfect. Done. I support it. But Democrats are going to say to everyone else who's on the fence, they're going to say, oh, no, no. If you support this tax cut, you're going to lose funding for roads. You're going to lose funding for police. You're going to lose funding for fire departments. You're going to lose funding for parks. You're going to lose funding for schools. And you're going to lose this and this and this and this. And everyone's like, oh, uh, uh, okay, I don't want to do that. 
And we're sitting over here saying, whoa, yeah, but look at all the things you're going to gain. You're going to gain you know, $10,000 a year, $5,000 a year. Think of all the things you could buy with the money that you're going to gain now because of the tax cuts. And the Democrat says, no, but you're going to lose this and you're going to lose this and you're going to lose that and you're going to lose this other thing. Democrats win that battle every single time. So what do we do? How do we overcome this? How do the Republicans, if they want to properly pitch this and they want people to support these tax cuts, what do they do? It's pretty simple. You just got to know how to do it. And we'll talk about that next. one 933 It's called loss aversion. Incredibly powerful. And I hope Trump uh, recognizes this and uses it to his advantage. We'll, do, we'll, we'll talk about how he can do that next. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. This is Mike Slater. So what do we do? What do we do about this loss aversion phenomenon? Um, well, first of all, in life, I actually just, we just used it the other day. So uh, my wife wants to wake up earlier and she has a hard time waking up. She always has had a hard time. Wake- I'm a morning person. I'm up at 430 every morning and I'm just like, here we are. Let's ready. Let's go. Uh, she's not so much. So she usually wakes up around 630. Uh, but she wants to wake up at 5.30. So for weeks, she would say, gosh, if I can wake up at 5.30, then I can accomplish this and I can accomplish that and I can get this done before Jack, our son, wakes up at 7. So I can get you know an hour or so of stuff done and it'd be amazing. And every morning, 5.30, the alarm would go off and uh, snooze, 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 snooze until it's 6.30. It's like, oh. The motivation of thinking about what I can accomplish in the morning wasn't enough. So Thursday, she's like, this isn't working. So I flipped it and I said, okay, well, instead of thinking about what you can accomplish at 5.30, think about what you won't be able to accomplish because you're getting up late. So think about what you won't be able to accomplish because you're getting up at 6.30. And then when you'd wake up at 6.30, think of all the regret you would have because these are the things you could have done but didn't. Next morning, woke up at 5.30, no problem. So it's, do you see the difference? So don't think about what you will accomplish if you get up early. Think about what you won't accomplish if you get up late. So for the Republicans, Oh, and so this, this is what I do every morning. I didn't even realize it. So every morning, the reason I wake up at 4.30 is because I think, gosh, if I don't wake up early, then I'm not going to be able to do all my show prep, that I'm not going to be able to, to go to the gym like I like to do early, uh, that I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not. So, so I, I like, oh, okay, I got to get up. So for Republicans, they need to pitch this tax reform 
not as what you will gain by a tax decrease, but by what you will lose if you don't support it. And at what you will lose out on in the future if taxes stay the same. So instead of saying, with, so I like to think of it, I, I like to think $5,000 as a nice family vacation. I haven't gone, I mean, I've never gone on a family vacation. It's been me and my wife. So I don't really know what a family vacation costs. And I guess it obviously depends where you go. But I have this perspective that $5,000. If you put that aside, you can go on a pretty awesome vacation. Disney World for a week or something. Uh, that may be way off. There may be, there may be families listening now who are like, no, no, it's like 10,000 or it's a thousand. I have no clue. I'm going five grand, right? So you could say, Republicans could say, hey, with another $5,000, let's lower taxes. You get another $5,000. You can go on a family vacation to Disney World for a week. Don't do it that way. Instead say, if you don't support this tax plan, then you won't be able to go on vacation for a week with your family to Disney World. You will lose out on the opportunity to be able to go to Disney World for a week. If you don't support this, you're, look at everything you're going to miss. Look at everything you won't be able to do. If you don't pass this, the next year you won't be able to go on vacation. Next year you won't be able to buy a new car. You won't be able to put money away in your retirement account. And you're going to be way worse off in your retirement because you're not able to put money into it now. Look at everything you're going to lose if you don't support this, that gets people fired up way more. So the Republicans need to talk about what they, what you, what the American people won't be able to afford, won't be able to accomplish in their lives if they don't support it. Talk about what you're losing, not by what you could gain. And that sounds like just semantics, but it is a total deal changer, total game changer. What's different, going back to Uber, what's different really from Uber saying, hey, if you know, if you work on Fridays, then you're going to make $15 more an hour. And people are like, eh, okay. Versus, hey, if you, if you don't work on Fridays, you're losing $15 an hour. And people are like, oh my gosh, I got to go work on Fridays. It's a big, big, big difference. Sounds subtle, but it's huge. So they probably won't do that. But that's if they wanted this thing to pass, then they will. one 93 We did a video on Facebook the other day. Uh, three, this, was, this was the day before the tax plan was unveiled. Um, three things that the left is immediately going to come out with against this tax increase or tax decrease plan, the tax reform plan. Three things are immediately going to say about it. Uh, and one of them is we can't afford it. We can't afford, how are we going to pay for these tax cuts? They cost too much, which is total nonsense. Tax cuts don't cost money. Spending costs money. Government spending costs money, but tax cuts don't cost money. The only people who say that are people who, who believe that the government owns all the money. All of your money, all the money in America, the government owns all of it. So from a government's perspective, them letting you keep more of your money to them is costing money. That's the only perverted perspective you'd have to have in order to come to that conclusion that it costs money. Tax cuts don't cost money. So that was our prediction. And then sure enough, Newsweek, Trump's proposed tax plan could cost the government $6 trillion. New York Times, what Trump's tax proposal will cost? MSNBC, calculating the cost of the Trump tax plan. But do you see why these are effective? Because it all, like when something costs money, you're losing it. When something, like we can't afford it, like got it spent, like they, when they put it in that perspective, 
people think like we're losing out. Oh my gosh, it costs money. Oh no, I can't, we can't, we got to say we can't cost, we can't be spending money like that. So they use the loss aversion technique in their criticism. Oh, you can't support this because look, it costs $6 trillion. And people are like, oh, I don't want to, can't have it spend, we can't spend $6 trillion. Well, no, it's not, that's spending. You're letting you, the government's letting you keep $6 trillion. And I don't know about you, I wouldn't mind keeping another $6 trillion, even if it means that I have to share that savings with every other person in America. And I just end up with $2,000 in savings. That's still fine by me. Tax cuts don't cost money. So why do they say that? Why do Democrats say that? Loss aversion. They get it. They get the PR campaign. They get the marketing. We'll see if Trump does too. 1-888-933-93. Slater Radio on Twitter. Oh, and check out our Facebook page. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. And if you scroll down a little bit, you can see the, uh, the video that we made the other day. All right, I want to come back, chat a little bit about Ann Coulter and Berkeley and that whole nonsense. And why the people in academia would want to shut someone like that down. Do that next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater, there's two stories this week that I want to talk about um, the, the underlying foundation of both of them. So the first is this political article, which is fantastic. Please search it and read it. It's about the Iran deal, Barack Obama and the Iran deal. And way worse than we thought. We, everyone thought it was bad, but it's way worse than that. And they totally, obviously lied to the American people about it. And Politico wrote a great article about it. Uh, and you look at that and you're like, holy cow, how could a deal like that have been made? Where President Obama not only released five terrorists who they said were pretty low-level guys that didn't really do that much, and it turns out they were pretty serious top-notch terrorists, and, and they never told us this, they dropped the charges on 21 different criminals uh, who were in Iran that we were trying to capture and all that, and just dropped charges on them. And they said, like, oh, you know, they're not big deal. And no, they were huge high-level guys too. It's like, holy cow, why did you do this? How could you think that this would be a good idea? So please search the whole article. It's on Politico. Uh, then the second thing was Ann Coulter trying to speak at Berkeley these last couple of weeks and, and just everything going on in Berkeley and all the college campuses, it seems. Shutting down speech, any conservatives, et cetera. So you look at both those things, and there's many other examples of this, but where does that come from? So very truly, it comes from the belief that the West, and I'll explain all this, but that the West is bad and the West is evil and are imperialists and racists and colonists and warmongers and all the rest. Kids at Berkeley, but at universities across the country are truly, and I'll use this word and I, I mean this specifically, brainwashed into believing this. And I say brainwashed because they haven't researched this for themselves. They haven't been given the full perspective, which is my main argument here. So they're not really coming to their own conclusions. They're just listening to the dogma of their professors 
who, who genuinely believe this as well. So David Brooks, he's the conservative at the New York Times. To the air quotes. I don't know if you could see or hear the air quotes. I just, uh, and he said, today many students are taught that Western civilization is a history of oppression. So there's two steps to this thinking. The first, and this is from David Lattier. He says, the first is that the West, people in the West have committed violent atrocities because of their religious and cultural superiority over everyone else. Therefore, this is the second part. Therefore, Western civilization is not worth preserving. Okay, you got to have both those. The first one is Western people have done horrible, horrible things in the name of religion and, and cultural superiority. And because we've done horrible things, because of that, therefore, Western civilization is not worth preserving. So we're going to attack everything that is Western and we're going to lift up everything else that is not. Islam, for instance. But here's the problem with that. Every civilization in all of human history has committed violent atrocities. So therefore, no civilization is worth preserving? I want to quote Jacques Allure. He's a uh, French philosopher in the 70s mostly. And his argument is that if the standard is that any civilization that's violent and oppressive shouldn't survive, then no civilization would ever make the cut. And he says, yes, Western civilization has, has many sins in our past and we shouldn't deny them, but it doesn't mean that we need to commit cultural suicide as a result. He says, I admit the accusations in their full extent of, of, of bad things in, in the West, in the past of the West, but I do not accept the rejection of the West in its entirety. I accept responsibility for the evil that has been done, but I deny that only evil has been done. I know that our civilization is built on bloodshed and robbery, but I also know that every civilization is built on bloodshed and robbery. Let me begin, he says, by recalling some facts. We have been colonialists and we are now imperialists, which I don't agree with, but we'll just go with it. But we did not invent colonialism and imperialism, nor are we the sole actors in these dramas. When the Arabs invaded the whole northern section of black Africa, what was that but colonialism? And indeed, something worse than colonialism. And what of the Turkish invasion that created the Ottoman Empire? And the Khmer invasion that created the Khmer Empire is around 800. The Tonkinese invasion that created the Tonkin Empire. And the terrible conquests of Genghis Khan, which were doubtless the most terrible conquests of all, since Genghis Khan probably slaughtered some 60 million people in the course of his reign, or more people than Hitler or even Stalin. Genghis Khan was around 1,200. And the Bantu invasions that created new invader kingdoms in two-thirds of the Black Continent. And what of the Chinese invasion of a third of Asia? And the Aztec invasion of their neighbors? It just goes, it goes, it goes on and on and on. I love that last. I love that he brought up the Aztecs. So we're here in, I live in San Diego and San Diego state where the Aztecs and, uh, you know, right on the border with Mexico and all this stuff. So we got a lot of people who truly believe that, you know, America stole Mexico or stole uh, California, Texas and all the rest from Mexico. And, and we should give it back. Right. And people very proud of their Mexican heritage and their Aztec heritage and all that. And 
therefore super critical of the white imperialist Spaniards who came over and, and slaughtered the Aztec people. And I hear that and I think, you what, what are you talking about? So let me run, when I, I don't know if, I don't know, I'm trying to think how familiar I was of the Aztecs before I moved to San Diego. But so when I say Aztec, what do you think? When I say the Aztecs. So I think Aztec warrior, right? That's like the first thing, Aztec warrior. I also think of human sacrifices on the altar. Okay, so what, but, but we'll save that for another day. What do you think the Aztec warriors did? Sat around a fire singing songs, holding hands, loving each other, loving their neighbors. Just, they, were, they were reading books all the time. They were very studious, studious tribes people. What are you talking about? They killed the neighboring tribes. That's why they're known as the Aztec Empire. How do you think they became the Aztec Empire? Negotiation? No, they raped and pillaged and dragged people into slavery if they didn't cut their hearts out while they were still alive. What do you think? Right, so I love that the people who, you know, love Aztec heritage and then complain about the Spaniards. And, oh, the West is so brutal. Well, the rest wasn't, the West wasn't especially brutal. They just won. And anyone from Texas, anyone from Texas who took, a, uh, who took history classes in their Texas high school, because every, every, I don't know, I, I think, every place I've lived, their schools teach the local heritage, right? So I grew up in Syracuse, New York, so we learned all about the Iroquois Indians and the Erie Canal. And here in uh, California, Southern California, they learn about all the missions, right? all the, the friar missions all across California. So in Texas, and I'm sure people from Texas can back me up, um, they teach that Texas today, the land that is known as Texas is run by America. Before that, by the Mexicans. Before that, the Spaniards. Before that, the Comanches. Before that, the Apaches. Before that, the Lipans. Before that, the Cados. Before them, the Karankawas. Before them, the Kohelectulans. And we could go back and keep going. That's around, we're around 1,500 at this point. Right, so we'll stop there. I think you get what I'm saying. So how did the Apaches beat the Lipans? They killed them. How did the Spaniards beat the Comanches? They killed them. How did the Mexicans take over the Spaniards, right? et cetera? Like America took over Mexico, Texas, the Mexican-American War. Like that's, that's how it's always worked. But we're not new. This isn't the first time. Like America's not the first country that came and it said, oh, we want this land. We're taking it. We'd fight. And then we signed a treaty. And then that's it. It's ours. Right? Like that's, that's how that's always worked. So this French guy, he just rattled off some, some pretty brutal cultures and empires in history. Does this mean we're just as bad as Genghis Khan? No, not by a long shot. Yeah, we've made mistakes. But on the whole, and this is the important part, on the whole, we are unique because as this French philosopher says, the essential, central, undeniable fact is that the West was the first civilization in history to focus attention on the individual and on freedom. Nothing can rob us of the praise that is due to us for that. We have been guilty of denials and betrayals. We have committed crimes, yes, but we have also caused the whole of mankind to take a gigantic step forward and to leave its childhood behind. You have 
progressives who only look at the, the bad things of us. And then those same people will only look at the good things of the Aztecs or the good things of the whoever. No context, no perspective, no, this is so funny, no nuance, right? That's the thing, like the progressives are always complain about conservatives, but it's all black and white. And, and here you have progressives like, oh, West evil, uh, everyone else great. <laughs> it's like, wait, wait, little, little, little perspective, no, no nuance here whatsoever. All right. So this, this whining is it's this loathing. It's exhausting. And I'm just, I'm just done with it. Everyone on college campuses, they spend so much time complaining about our past and we're evil and racist and blah, blah, blah. Get over it already. Let's do better. Certainly let's learn from our past, but saints alive. We get it. You are missing what is great. What is righteous? What is unique? What is exceptional about Western culture and about America? I'll just end here because I got to take a break. Have you ever heard of the Nanjing Massacre? So this is the, the second uh, Sino-Japanese wars. This is Japan and China, 1938. So the Japanese took over Nanjing and the Japanese killed between 200 and 300,000 civilians. 300,000 civilians. Hold on, looking at fact up here. Um, that's almost. I think that's almost as many as Americans who died in World War II. Uh, let me see here. I forget. I want to get this right. Uh, United States. How many United States? 400,000. Yeah, 400,000 uh, service members died during World War II. American service members. 400,000. So almost that many. You know, 50, 75% of civilians killed in China just by this one thing. Just the Nanjing Massacre. And just like horrible stuff. There was a contest in Japan to see how many civilians could be killed. Uh, by the by, a sword. And then the, and then and then the goal was to see who could get to a hundred civilians the fastest. And they had a contest. It was like in the newspapers, like who? Oh, here's this guy. Here's Charlie. He look, he killed a hundred people in two days. And like what? Thousands of women raped and left to die in the streets. It was like horrible, horrible stuff. Now, what Japan did in that moment doesn't make America good. But I think the first step in deconstructing the narrative that the West is evil is. To get people to stop thinking that we are uniquely so or exceptionally bad, that is most certainly not true. But what we are unique and exceptional at is being good. And for that, we should get credit. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Crusaders. I apologize. I forgot to, to wrap up the whole point of that last segment. Um, so when you look at Obama's Iran deal, former President Barack Obama and all the people in the White House, those are all people who subscribe to this way of thinking, who believe that the West uniquely has a history of genocide and oppression. And because they believe that as a way to atone for our sins, to wash our past sins away, they are more inclined to give things away to Iran. Which is absurd 
because the Persians don't exactly have a squeaky clean history themselves. Of, of all the people that you, right? The Persians? But, I did, but that's, that's where that comes from. That's the root of it. Like I said, because you look at the Iran deal, and please read this political article uh, about how bad the Iran deal was and is even worse than we thought. And you're reading it and you're like, holy cow, what do you, what? 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 It's because the White House is full of academics who grew up thinking this, that the West is uniquely evil and horrible. And they, that's why they would even begin to walk down that road. And it's all about your perspective. So I don't have long to explain this, but screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. You have uh, the big demon screw tape, and he's trying to teach his little nephew, uh, little tiny demon, how to be a big bad demon. And uh, the demon is saying, listen, when you're, when you're, calls it the patient, when the, the Christian guy that you're being the demon about goes to church, make sure he only focuses on the person who's singing out of tune and the person who has shoes that squeak and who has a double chin and who wears weird clothes. And if you can do that, then the person's going to think, oh gosh, this whole religion thing is absurd. Look at all these ridiculous people here, right? So go to church and make sure that you only focus on the bad things. Nitpick every single bad thing in the church and that'll keep them from wanting to go back. And that's how progressives look at America. They nitpick all the bad things. That's all they look at. And then they obviously you go down that road and America's an evil, you know, infidel oppressor and all the rest. But that's not fair. It's not, it's not forget fair. That's not just, it's not accurate. It's not the full story. It's not the full context. It's not the full perspective. It's not the truth. So we need to look at the full story of America. And if you do that, first of all, you look at the full story of the rest of the world, and then you look at the full story of America. And if you do that with a true, honest perspective, you can't help but come to the conclusion that America is uniquely exceptional in all the good ways. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze, Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. So I want to chat about two TV segments from uh, the last week here. Uh, let's start with Bill Nye the Science Guy. Uh, we don't have time to do this segment today, but <laughs> Bill Nye has a new show on Netflix called Bill Nye Saves the World. And the last episode is about overpopulation and how there's too many people on the planet, which is something that environmentalists have been saying for hundreds of years. First started 1798, Thomas Malthus. So there's too many people on the planet. There were a billion people on the planet. Uh, at that time, 94% of the world was living in extreme poverty. Today, it's less than a dollar a day. So when Thomas Malthus first said that 200 years ago, there were a billion people. Today, there's 7 billion people and extreme poverty is 9%. Dropped from 94% to 9% over the last 200 years. So not only are there seven times as many people, more than seven times, but 
people have never been wealthier, never had a higher standard of living, never had greater access to healthcare and food and all the rest. So this whole overpopulation nonsense is just that. It is nonsense. So don't watch Bill Nye's Netflix show. Um, but he was on TV the other day, and it was him, the founder of uh, Earth350.org, which is an environmentalist group, and then an actual scientist, William Happer. He's a physicist at Princeton. There's nothing really noteworthy about their whole conversation uh, other than Bill Nye does not have the mind of a scientist. So a real scientist or someone who has a scientific mind, whether they're a professional scientist or not, but someone who has a scientific mind promotes science as an open search for truth, not a closed-minded ideology. Right? Nye, his attitude well, it was after the interview, he criticized CNN for even having a climate denier on the air. This physicist from Princeton, right? Like, how dare you even listen to what he has to say, right? Like, that's the mindset of a hack, not a scientist who loves discussing how to interpret evidence and, and loves challenging established ideas and who loves uh, scientific discovery, right? Like, that's what science, it's a scientific mind. Bill Nye does not have that. Now, I am not a scientist. Um, most people aren't trained scientists. So when they hear people who claim to be, and those people speak with confidence, like Bill Nye does, then we tend to believe them. right? We do the all, well, they must know more than me. Bill Nye does not know more than you. Now, that being said, I, I may not be an expert in analyzing computer models of climate predictions, but I am a bit more of an expert in the Constitution. And I want to play this clip here from Bill Nye. It's uh, 1464. Here it is. The science march today is about the economy as well as the environment. Although it's Earth Day, and I was here for the very first Earth Day in 1970. If you suppress science, if you pretend that climate change isn't a real problem, you will fall behind other countries that do invest in science, that do invest in basic research. And it's interesting to note, I think, that Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution refers to the progress of science and the useful arts. Uh, and useful arts in uh, 18th century usage would be what we would call engineering or city planning or architecture. Mm. So this is a very serious problem. When uh, Earth Day started in 1970, everybody's concerned about pollution. Uh, and, we, we, can uh, what, we can stop there. So Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, you know it well. This is the part where we, the people, give Congress, the federal government, the authority to do certain things. And there's a list of things, coin money, declare war, things like that. And one of the things that we give Congress the power to do is to, Bill Nye said it, to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. Now, I'll stop there. If you do stop there, if you stop the sentence right there, like Bill Nye did, what does that mean? Right? It's Congress's job to promote the progress of science and useful arts. It could mean Congress has the power to give a bunch of money to scientific research, scientific causes, um, Useful arts could mean anything, right? And you just, someone can make the argument that whatever junk they have on display at a modern art museum is useful art, right? 
Now, Bill Nye was right that back then, useful arts was engineering. That's what that meant. So Bill Nye is an originalist all of a sudden, right? Isn't that funny? Bill Nye's like, well, what did they what did they mean at the time that they wrote this? Which is what originalists do. Um, but but the point is that Bill Nye believes he has constitutional authority, and the Congress, the, the, the federal government, has constitutional authority to do whatever it wants to fight climate change because the Constitution says we need to promote the progress of science. Here's the thing: that's not the end of the sentence. Remember our rule, it comes up a lot. Whenever someone doesn't finish the sentence in the Constitution, when they're quoting the Constitution and they don't finish the sentence, they're hiding something. They're trying to deceive. The full sentence is, Congress has the ability to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. That is the patent office. So Congress has the the ability to promote the progress of science, not by investing in it, not by controlling in it, not by controlling it, not by having science departments. They have the ability to promote science by creating a patent office, leaving people free to invent things and discover things. The government's job is property rights, protect private property rights. No one would invent anything if as soon as they do, everyone can copy it and steal it from them. So in order order to, so really they, they wrote the sentence, from their perspective, they didn't write it backwards, but it would be easier for us to understand if they wrote it backwards, if they wrote it the other way around, right? So today, in today's speak, I'm just gonna flip it around. In, um, Congress has the ability to secure for limited times, right? It's a pet, you have a patent for 10, 20 years, whatever, to the authors and inventors, the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries so that we can promote the progress of science and useful arts. Bill Nye, by not quoting the whole sentence, distorted the Constitution to fit his own worldview. Now, makes you think. If he will twist the Constitution, something right there in writing, it's right there. Google it. You can read the whole sentence yourself. If he's willing to go on TV and twist and distort a line out of the Constitution in order to fit his own ends, what will he do and say about climate predictions and climate models to fit his own ends too. Right? Because climate predictions, climate models, it's like, it's like, what are we looking at? Like, no one even knows. Like, what, what is this thing? What do I, and there's a million different ways and variables and things you can look at and not look at and blah, blah. And you're like, well, how do I interpret that? Bill Nye, he's, oh, I'm the authority. I, I can know how to interpret it. Are we supposed to trust him? Because look what he does with a sentence out of the Constitution, which is, it's like, it's like 20 words. So there's 20 words right here, boom, right there. And, then, and he'll, he'll twist that. So if he'll twist that, of course he'll twist whatever climate models he's looking at. The Bible says a lot about false prophets. And, and it says that the most dangerous people, the most dangerous false prophets are those who know the Bible, right? Because they can use scripture to twist and distort, right? Even Satan himself was disguised as an angel of light. 
right? The devil quoted scripture to Jesus to try to get him to sin. Quoted scripture. Bill Nye is, is using the Constitution and just with, with just enough knowledge of it, right? He's able to quote it, but not all of it. He's able to share a part of it, but not the whole thing. So he shares enough just so it almost makes sense, but it's not the full story. That is a deceiver. And again, if he's willing to deceive you on that, why wouldn't he deceive everyone else on climate change? one 888 Mike Slater Show on Twitter. we got uh, one clip I want to play next, one more TV clip uh, from Tucker's show from the other day. I want to play that next as well. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders. All right, one more uh, TV segment here I want to break down. This is on Tucker's show. Uh, he's talking to J- uh, Julissa Arce. Arce. She's a dreamer. Uh, came here when she was 11 from Mexico, went to college, ultimately became a vice president at Goldman Sachs. And she wrote an article on uh, CNBC about, against the, the border wall, or the, right? Trump's border wall. So this is one of the sentences that she wrote. She said, while the wall is Trump's symbol of hate, and a complete waste of taxpayer money. Trump's deportation force is the most harmful and pressing threat, blah, blah, blah. So she goes on and on about it. And, and, and she's sharp because she, I mean, she's smart. Uh, so she makes good arguments. But when she's on Tucker's show, Tucker zeroes in on the symbol of hate line. And I want to play this because watch how she can't defend it. So this is what happens when someone will exaggerate. Right. Trump's Trump's wall is a symbol of hate. And and people will say something, they'll exaggerate like that and not be able to back it up. And when they're called on it, look at the things that people will do to backtrack, to dodge, to step sidestep and all this, because you can't really back something like that up. All right. So so uh, take this in here. We'll break it down. 1465. And my voice might be different than your voice, but we both get to voice our opinion. But I'm not, I'm not, of and course, so I would, and I'm not challenging your, your right to, ha- to say what you think, and I would, I would defend it, literally. However, I yeah. don't understand well, my, my, why a country's desire to protect its border is, this, is an expression of hate. Well, what, what does that mean? My, I, think, I think my, no, I think that my, the point that I'm trying to make is that the wall is not the best way to protect our borders. Listen, I live here. I want this country to be safe. My children are going to grow up in America as American citizens born here. And so I absolutely want our country to be safe. But building a wall that is going to cost, by the way, billions of dollars of American taxpayers, my tax dollars are going to go I'm sorry. You, to build I'm not, a wall I, you know what? I don't have that any patience for that argument because I don't think it's... It isn't going to protect argument. us. Okay. How is you, a wall going so to protect us? So you're saying it's too expensive. You're saying okay, the wall is too expensive. Let's stop here for a second. So the question is, how is the wall a symbol of hate? You said it's a symbol of hate. 
How is it a symbol of hate? Her first two arguments are, it's not the best way to defend the country and it will be expensive. Now, those are fine arguments, right? If, if you want to make that argument, it's totally fine. Um, so the first one is, it's not the best way to defend the country. Okay. Um, I don't agree with that, but that's an argument that people can could make and, and that's that's fine. You know, you could say, oh, you know, a wall, people can just go over it or under it or around it and whatever, right? Um, and you can make the argument that the wall is not going to be as effective at, at keeping people out as, you know, you as some people would like to imagine it will be. All right, so that's fine. You can totally make that argument. But that's not what you said. You said the wall is a symbol of hate. Why is it a symbol of hate? Well, it's not the best way to defend the country. Well, so... So a bigger wall? Would it would it not be a symbol of hate it was if it was a taller wall, if it was a thicker wall, if it went a hundred feet below the surface of the earth so people couldn't go under it? Like is that what you're saying? Because the question again, why how is the wall a symbol of hate? Well, it's not the best way to defend the country. Okay, so if we used drones every mile for the entire border, drones with lasers on it that would shoot anyone and who crosses it. Is that like that's is that not a symbol of hate? Because let's let's think of let's say if there's something that d- is amazing that totally locks the country down, right? Like no one can cross it. Is it no longer a symbol of hate? Because your argument so far is that it's a symbol of hate because it's not good at defending the country. So that can't clearly be what you really think, right? And then you say it's expensive. Expensive. How how does that make it a symbol of hate? Again, you can say it's too expensive. That's fine. But that's not the question. The question's not, why are you against the wall? Oh, well, I'm against the wall because I don't think it'll defend the country and it's too expensive. Okay. That's not the question. The question is, why did you call it a symbol of hate? Okay, so she's dodging. Let's give her another chance here. 1466. It's too expensive. You're saying the wall is too expensive, but you know. It's going not a to real protect argument. us. Okay. How is you, the wall going so to protect us? So you're saying it's too expensive. You're saying the wall is too expensive, but you know that's not actually what you said. You said it's an expression of hate, and I just want to get to the bottom of that. Why is it hateful to want to build a wall? A lot of Americans do, the majority in some surveys. Why is that related to hate? It is, it is a hateful symbol. It is a symbol of, of hate against immigrants. It is a, him, a symbol of hate against uh, Mexican immigrants, which, you know, the president, uh, the, the, Mr. Trump, uh, ran his campaign on. So I do still view the But why the is it a symbol of hate? I just want to get to the bottom of this, because you're throwing around language that has an effect on people's attitudes, and it's pretty heavy duty, because it presumes motives that you can't know. You don't know that people who support the wall hate Mexican immigrants. A lot of people coming across their border are not from Mexico, as you know. They're Central Americans. Is it legitimate, is it morally legitimate for an American to say, I want control of who comes into my country, and we don't have that, and so a wall will reestablish that control. For you to denounce that as hate and seems I would, a little much. And I would absolutely, and I would absolutely welcome a conversation about how do we create a system by which people can come here legally that will benefit Americans, that will increase tax revenue, that will increase economic activity. So we should have that conversation. We're having that conversation now. You're not answering with respect. You're not answering my question. You're not answering the key question here. But let's get to another question. I I am answering the question. question Why is it a symbol of hate for people to disagree with you on the wall? As, as, a Mexican, as a Mexican immigrant, I can have an opinion that that wall, to me, symbolizes 
a symbol. I'm merely asking you to explain your opinion. I'm not challenging your right to have one. I think you have a right to have any opinion you want. But I think I have a right to ask you what you're talking about, and you can't explain it. So let's move on to the next question, which is really... (laughs) Okay, so there it is, right? So then it turned into, well, this is my opinion. I'm entitled to have an opinion. Yeah, yeah, of course you are. But as Tucker just said, I'm just asking you to back it up. (laughs) What are you talking about? Why? Why is it a symbol of hate? This is what happens when people are imprecise with their language. And, and it's pretty irresponsible calling it a symbol of hate. Because then, therefore, anyone who wants a wall is a person full of hate. Right? If that's a symbol of hate and you support it, then you are a hateful person. And that just creates more division and that's not helpful, obviously. Right? But so you see how that is? Like, you just, it's a throwaway. Uh, it's just to her. It's like, well, it's my opinion. I'm going to call it a, a symbol of hate. How? Um, I, don't, I don't know. Just, I don't like it. Yeah, okay, but how, you can't call it a symbol of hate without backing that up. Now, she says she's open to have a conversation about, about you know, speeding up the illegal immigrant process and all that. Great, so would I. But you can't do that unless you stop the flow of illegal immigrants across the border. No one will go through the process legally, even if we speed it up. No one will go through the process legally if they can do it easier, cheaper, faster, illegally. So you got to stop the illegal flow. And then at the same time, have a process of legal immigration. This is not tricky. This is not hard. And it's not about racism. It's not about hatred. It's about chaos. We just want to stop the chaos. And you can't until you stop people from illegally coming across. So once we stop people from coming across the border, then we can have a conversation about streamlining the immigration process. And I would be very open to that. I think most Americans would be. But having control of our border is a necessary first step. First step. I really, I really like that clip there because... So William F. Buckley, a couple decades ago, said, he was doing a debate with someone, and he said, I won't insult your intelligence by suggesting that you really believe what you just said. And, and I think that applies to this woman. Like, listen, lady, you just said this wall is a symbol of hate. I'm not going to insult your intelligence by suggesting you really believe that. And I think as Tucker Carlson just proved, she doesn't really. At least she can't back it up. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. Why, hello, Slater Crusaders. Thanks for being here. So, the president did an interview with the AP the other day, and it's amazing. <laughs> so, people just kept sending me links. I don't even know if there's audio for it. I don't know if there's audio or video. I just keep reading transcripts of it, which is kind of weird, but it's hilarious. It's so good. So, I want to read. Uh, let me just do one quick part here, and then uh, we'll get to the main point. So, here, this is this is Trump. Yeah, President uh, Z. Uh, we have a the president of China. We have a, like a, a really great relationship for me to call him a currency manipulator and then say, Hey, by the way, I'd like you to solve the North Korean problem. That doesn't work. So you got to have a certain flexibility. Number one, number two, from the time I took office till now, you know, it's a very exact thing. It's not like generalities. Do you want a Coke or anything? <laughs> and the AP person says, no, I'm okay. Thank you. 
It's like, what? You're talking about North Korea. You're talking about China and North Korea. Hey, by the way, you want a Coke? You good? Okay, all right, fine. I'll just move on. That's hilarious. All right, but here's the main part. So this got almost no attention last week. Aya Hajazi. She is an American, Egyptian descent, uh, and she's an aid worker. And she was in Egypt uh, with her husband. So she and her husband and a couple of other aid workers have been in prison for three years because of child abuse charges. And the charges are totally, completely absurd. And Barack Obama tried to negotiate her release for years, and obviously nothing ever happened. Now, the Egyptian president was at the White House a couple weeks ago, and they said, and they said, you know, before he got there, that this is one of the things they were going to talk about is, uh, are these Americans who are in the prison and she got released the other day and she was at the white house and they did a thing, whole thing. And she's home and her husband and all the other aid workers. And it got almost no media attention because Trump did it. Right. I'll get to that in a second, but how, how did that happen? So the AP says, can you tell me a little bit about how that came about? And Trump says, no, just, you know, I asked the government to let her out. You know, Obama worked on it for three years. Got Zippo, zero. (laughs) The AP AP says, well, how'd you hear about this story? Oh, many people, human rights people are talking about it. It's an incredible thing, especially when you meet her. You realize, I mean, she was in a rough place. Did you strike a deal with the president of Egypt over this? No, no deal. He was here. I said, I would really appreciate it if you would look into this and let her out. As you know, she went through a trial and anyway, she was let go. That's it? <laughs> right, so the APs, well, just, what, what deal did you strike? Oh, no, I, just, I just asked. So what's going on here? What is Donald Trump in his entire life? A salesman. What is the biggest thing in sales that salespeople don't do? They don't ask. Salespeople don't ask for the order. It's the most obvious part of the job. You'd think, right? Ask for the order. And it's amazing how many salespeople don't do this and then they wonder why they're not selling. They don't ask. They beat around the bush, right? They, they try to like present it, but they don't want to be too pushy or maybe too, or whatever. And they just don't ask. And people like to be asked. So Trump asked. That's it. So Trump's a great salesperson because he asks. So here's the example. So you're like, I don't believe it. It can't be that simple. All right, same interview. They're talking about the Italian prime minister and, and paying more money for NATO, right? And uh, that's the question. And Trump says, oh, he's going to end up paying. But you know, nobody ever asked the question. Nobody asked. Nobody ever asked him to pay up. So it's a different kind of presidency. <laughs> so there's two, two questions or two stories in this interview where he says, oh, I just asked. No one ever asked. I did. I asked. And this is how he won the presidency too. It's really that simple. He asked people for their vote in places where Hillary didn't. Hillary didn't spend a dime on advertising, I think in, I'm, this is ballpark fact, as Glenn would say. I don't think she spent a penny in Wisconsin like the last month before the election or something absurd like that. And she didn't go to Wisconsin or Michigan in the last couple of weeks. She didn't even go. And in Pennsylvania, all the states that he flipped, 
Hillary couldn't be bothered, couldn't be bothered to ask for the vote. Trump asked. What if it's that simple? What if it really all comes down? It's just that it all comes down to that. It's just that simple. He asked. She didn't. I want to read this This is from uh, Tip O'Neill. Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House uh, in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. I think he was the third longest serving Speaker of the House in history or something. Uh, Democrat. So this is from uh, a biography of him. Thomas P. O'Neill learned two great lessons from his first campaign. One lesson was learned on the last day of the campaign from his high school drama teacher, a neighbor who lived across the street from his house. On that fateful day, Mrs. Elizabeth O'Brien approached the aspiring politician and said, Tom, I'm going to vote for you tomorrow, even though you didn't ask me. Tip was puzzled as he's known Mrs. O'Brien for years and has done chores for her, cutting grass, raking leaves, shoveling snow. And he told his neighbor, I didn't think I had to ask for your vote. She replied, Tom, let me tell you something. People like to be asked. How crazy if the entire election really comes down to that. Hillary expected people's vote. Trump asked for people's vote. And people like to be asked. And just for the record, Tip's second lesson was that all politics is local. But that's not uh, not relevant here. So Roger Kimball, he compared what Trump did with this Egyptian woman and what Obama did, right? Now, what I want to share is a little bit of a different moment, right? But it's the same idea. If you remember back in 2014, Barack Obama released five senior Taliban leaders in Guantanamo Bay for Bo Bergdahl, who was that army deserter, right? So Barack Obama ordered five terrorists to be released in exchange for an anti-American army deserter who cost the lives of at least six army soldiers who went looking for him. So that, that's what it took for that trade. On the other hand, Trump heard about an American woman in Egypt in jail and asked the president to let her go. Now, from the media's perspective, when Bergdahl was released, big deal all over the place, right? Remember that Bo and his mom and dad were at the White House and they did a whole speech and the whole thing and all this. And, and everyone in America is like, well, wait a second. This guy, this guy's a deserter. Like, he, what, why are we, we celebrate? And then you, wait, you gave up five people from Guantanamo Bay in exchange for him? Like, what do you? But the media loved it. They're, oh, the greatest thing in the world. Americans back home. And it's like this great you know, coming home story. Everyone America's like, what are you, huh? Meanwhile, when this woman was released, the New York Times, you know, on the, on the side, they have the, the column. And it's like, uh, you know, for, for more of this story, go to page A16. Or whatever. So they have the, the world section, a couple stories, the U.S. section, a couple stories, and then the politics section. And there are three stories in the politics section. The middle one was about this woman coming back home to America. The middle one. It wasn't in the world section. It wasn't in the U.S. section. It was in the politics section because, as Kimball said, Trump is unable to perform a humanitarian act to everyone in the New York Times. Unable. It's impossible. Everything he does has to be filtered through the lens of politics. So we're going to squeeze it into the politics section when it should be front page news, if nothing else. Should be amazing news, and it would be 
there was a different person in the White House. So step one, if you want someone to do something, maybe we make it way too complicated. Maybe just ask. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. I want. I got. Let me take a break here. I want to come back. I want to share another story here of Teddy Roosevelt because there's something else that people love, and I think this is true for American people, and I think it's mostly or even more true for people around the world. People love bold, decisive leaders. I don't want to share a story of Teddy Roosevelt to prove that point. We'll do that next on the Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater just talked a story about shared a story about asking <laughs> we have a president who will ask people for things i love the he's like yeah the italian prime minister he hasn't paid more for nato because no one asked him but i asked him he will <laughs> like oh like that's simple so people like to be asked and i also think people in the world especially appreciate boldness not recklessness from a U.S. president. No one wants that, but boldness. Absolutely. So I'm reading this book called The River of Doubt. It's awesome. It's awesome, awesome, awesome. It's about Teddy Roosevelt, and it's right after he lost his uh, uh, race for third term as president. So the Constitution says you can't do two consecutive terms, but you can take a term off and then come back and run again. All right, so Barack Obama can run in, you know, next, next go around if he wanted. So Teddy Roosevelt did his two terms, and then he took eight years off, and then he came back and ran uh, a third term. For a third term, but he didn't, he lost and he wanted to go. He was super depressed. So he wanted to go on this crazy adventure. So he decided to go with his son to explore this river in the Amazon. It was called the river of doubt. Ominous name. And no one's ever gone down it before. Totally. They had no clue what was down this river and they're going down the river and everyone almost died. And many people did. It's just a crazy, crazy story. So I definitely recommend it. But before he goes down the river, he goes to South America, which in 19, this was 19, oh geez. What year was this? This is embarrassing. 1912, I think. Something like that. Um, At that time, South America was a continent that was really unknown to Americans. But he gets down there and he visits a couple uh, cities and gives speeches, which he hated doing. Now, he was loved everywhere he went except for one country. They hated him there. A little background here. It was Teddy Roosevelt who ordered the Panama Canal to be built. Now, here's the thing. This was in his third year in office, and the U.S. government was debating whether or not we should build a canal through Panama or Nicaragua. And we decided Panama, but at the time, Panama was controlled by Colombia. So Roosevelt said, hey, Colombia, we're going to give you 12 million bucks so we can build this canal. And Colombia said, no, you're not. Uh, first, it needs to be way more than that. And here's all the restrictions we have. 
And that really ticked off Teddy Roosevelt. And he wrote his secretary of state. He said, do not allow the lot of jackrabbits to bar one of the future highways of civilization. So the U.S. government supported this Panamanian revolution that was bubbling under the surface there for a long time in order to make Panama separate from Colombia. So U.S. Navy warships lined the coast uh, as this revolt was going on, as if to say, all right, Colombia, you're going to, what are you going to do? So the Panamanians won, started this new country, Panama, and they immediately signed this treaty with America to give us the canal space. So it was the, the land or the, the water and then five miles on each side. And it was a hundred year treaty. And we now gave it back to Panama a couple of years ago. But this is how this all started. So going to Colombia <laughs> was out of the question. The people of Colombia weren't so fond of the former president. The thing is, there were a lot of Colombians in Chile. So he goes to Chile and gives a speech and wasn't quite expecting it, but there were a ton of protests. They hated the Yankee imperialist in Chile. So what did he do? He ran like a coward. No, he faced it head on. And he gave this big speech. And one of the people who was with him on, on his adventure, he said the large auditorium in which he spoke seemed to be surcharged with electricity. And everyone seemed to be prepared for a shock or an explosion. Everything was dramatic in the extreme. So he gets up in front of everyone. And he says, now, what would Barack Obama say? Oh, you know, sorry. Well, you know, we had... I could he gets up and says, I took the action I did in the Panama because to have acted otherwise would have been both weak and wicked. I would have taken that action no matter what power stood in my way. What I did was in the interest of the world and was particularly in the interests of Chile and certain other South American countries. I was in accordance with the toughest, highest, and strictest dictates of justice. If it were a matter to do over again, I would act precisely and exactly as I did in every way. That's, that's what he said, stands up and says in front of this angry mob who wants to chop his head off. And I'll quote from the book. As these words rang through the hall, the audience leapt to its feet, cheering and applauding the Yankee imperialist. Amazing. He wasn't going to back down. He wasn't, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I, you know, we did that. We thought it was, oh, I didn't know that you, we took it, you wanted, he didn't do that. He didn't back down and the people respected it. Even those who disagreed with him, they at least respected his conviction. But our namsy pamsy truth is relative walk on eggshells culture we have today, talking like this. Oh, you can't. But you know what? I think in due time, talking like Roosevelt right did there, or did, that, did, did then, will eventually hold more value than it does today. Today, it's a bad thing to do, but I think one day soon, speaking like this will be held up as, uh, as a good thing. The sooner, the better. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. 
only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slice America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. I want to give a shout out to Duffy. Duffy, I was very wrong. Rebuked. Rightfully so. Uh, 22nd Amendment after FDR says you can't run for a third term, right? And the rule is you can't be a president for more than 10 years, consecutive or non-consecutive. I don't know what I was thinking, Duffy. I apologize. Thanks for being Johnny on the spot. So you could serve 10 years though. So if you were VP and uh, the last two years of that term you served as president, so the president resigns or passes away or whatever, you can serve those two years and then you can run for two more terms, but you can't do more than 10. Uh, thanks, Duffy. Thanks for being there. I don't know why I was thinking uh, the other way. Um, all right. So I want to uh, talk here about Alfred Veneger. Why? Why Alfred Veneger? So this is a great example of the science is settled. If you ever talk to someone about global warming or whatever, who tells you the science is settled, tell them this story of Alfred Veneger. It's similar to a story we've shared many times about Semmelweis. This is my favorite one, Semmelweis. Semmelweis was a doctor in the 1850s who was wondering why so many women were dying after childbirth. It wasn't from childbirth. It was after childbirth. And no one had any idea why. And they had their ideas, but no one had any clue. So Semmelweis said, oh, I don't know. Maybe we should wash our hands. And the doctor's like, oh, please. And he said, well, I don't know. I mean, we perform autopsies on dead bodies in the morning. And then we walk down the hall and we deliver a baby and we never wash our hands. Like maybe we should wash our hands before we do that. And you don't want to know what the scientific consensus was at the time? That Semmelweis was a superstitious Jew and they kicked him out of the medical field. He was the director of a hospital. They kicked him out of the hospital and he ended up dying from a nervous breakdown like a year or two later. Decades, decades went by. Until other doctors started saying, hmm, maybe he was on to something. Decades until they started washing their hands. The science was settled. It had nothing to do with germs. And who knows how many women died because the science was settled. So there, here's another, another story along those lines. So Alfred Wenger was a meteorologist around 1900. And he was in Greenland on an expedition. Now, at this time, uh, similar to what we were just talking about with South America, the Arctic and the Antarctic were some of the final domains that have yet to be discovered. So he goes up to Greenland. It's, it's 1906. And he's looking at uh, an ice cap, like a little iceberg that, uh, that broke up. Right, so it fractured. And he's looking at all the, the pieces floating in the water. And they looked like puzzle pieces as they were, they were drifting apart. And he's looking at the pieces and he goes, hmm, I wonder if something similar happened to the continents, right? Like the way there's, it was one piece of ice and then it broke apart into a couple pieces and they were kind of floating apart. And he looked at it and he's like, oh, I wonder if the continents kind of, so he goes home and he looks at an atlas and he says, oh, well, look at that. South America and Africa, they, they fit pretty nicely snug up next to each other. If you put them next to each other. And he literally, he wrote a letter to his fiance saying, hey, did you ever notice that the continents kind of fit together if you put them all together? Now, this is 1906. Today, every kid, every eight-year-old can look at an atlas and come to the same conclusion, but no one had ever thought that before him. I want to play a, a bit of this video here. The, the voices you're going to hear, one is a professor from Harvard. The woman's a professor from Harvard. One of the guys is a professor at University of Utah, 
And then another guy is an author of a biography about Alfred Venegar. So taking a little bit of this. He would write a paper in 1912, and he said, I think everybody will really be happy. And of course, everyone wasn't really happy. Everyone became very unhappy. There was a almost universal rejection of his theories to begin with. Here's the problem. Scientists are very suspicious of fundamental novelty. He was regarded as an outsider by the geoscience community because he had no academic credentials in that field, and so he was not considered qualified to make any statements in that field. What he was doing that was so different, though, was drawing together multiple lines of evidence, not just geology, but vegetation and paleontology. The botanical people responded very positively because it explained the distribution of plants and animals over the world. So he would write a book in 1915. People said, well, this is wrong and that's wrong. And then he wrote another book in 1920. He comes up with the name Pangaea. And then he wrote another one in 1922. And he kept fixing it and fixing it and fixing it. It's one thing to think of an idea, and it's another thing to work it out for 20 or 30 years. Hmm. A couple of things here. Scientists are humans. Think wow, Slater, that's it's really deep. But seriously, when people talk about science being this objective, foolproof study, they forget that science is performed by scientists, and scientists are humans with their own faults and biases, and perspectives, and blind spots, and all the rest. So when Venegar proposed his theory that all the, con all the continents were once connected and then broke apart, the group of scientists known as geologists rejected it. Why? He wasn't one of them. <laughs> right? It wasn't because he was wrong or he didn't have enough evidence. It's just because he wasn't one of them. He wasn't in the group. And they were jealous. They were exclusive. They were elitist. They were human. So he ended up going on another expedition to Greenland. This is in 1930. And it was there where he died in the freezing cold. That was 1930 when he died. It wasn't until the 70s when geologists said, hmm, um, turns out he was right. So sorry about that, buddy. 60 years, 60 years until geologists finally came around and said, oh yeah, that guy, he was, he was probably right about that. You kidding me? 60 years. But global warming science pff, settled. No, absolutely settled. No doubt about it. hundred percent settled. Come on. People in 30, 60 years are going to look back at us the same way we look back at the geologists who rejected vinegar saying, what, what, how could you guys be so foolish? So there's another example of, well, the science was settled. Of course, the continents were never connected to each other. It's absurd. The science is settled. And you're not a geologist anyway. What do you know? Um, that just, here's, here's all the evidence I have. Oh, but the science is already settled. 60 years later. Oh, yeah, science isn't so settled. I'm sorry. Now we got tons of examples like this today. So new study the other day concluded that 
lowering your salt intake does not reduce your blood pressure. So this is the, the latest and the longest study ever done on this. And turns out that those who consume the most salt, by today's standards, dangerously high amounts of salt, have the lowest blood pressure. <laughs> oh, science, the salt science is settled. Everyone, uh, uh, no, we know 100%, uh, you got less salt. Everyone needs less salt. To the point where Michael Bloomberg, mayor of New York City, right? He banned salt shakers on restaurants. At restaurants, no salt. Can't have salt, gotta lower salt. Too many heart attacks, gotta lower the salt intake. And now, now they're saying, well, actually, salt's good for you. Well, the latest theory is that it's hereditary. And some people do need to lower their salt intake and some people it has no effect. And that these one-size-fits-all recommendations don't work. But the, the grand conclusion of eat less salt means lower blood pressure. Not true. We've talked before about some uh, researcher in the 70s said fat is bad for you. You don't want to eat fat. Fat is what makes you fat. And there was another guy who said at the same time in the 70s was like, oh, uh, no, it's not fat. It's sugar. But the government went with the fat one. In fact, the fat guy, I don't know what, how, how, if he was fat or not, but the guy who said that fat was the problem and they ran with it. And that's when they made the food pyramid and they put carbs, sugar on the bottom. Oh, you got to have 20 servings of carbohydrates every single day. Eat more sugar. That was the government line. Eat more sugar. And now sugar's the problem. Oh, but I thought the science was settled. The food pyramid and the food pyramid's all wrong. One last example. I just read this. And this is all this week. I read an article yesterday. That uh, rice, you know when you sprain your ankle and the doctor will tell you rice, rest, ice, elevate, and compress rice? Um, now they're saying, well, no, that's probably not good to do. <laughs> and the rest and ice part may actually slow the healing process. So if you sprain your ankle or something, you don't want to rest it. You kind of want to move it around and you don't want to ice it. Uh, that makes it worse. Oh, but climate change, rock solid. Don't question. You're a denier. You're basically a Nazi. Oh, and uh, can you give Al Gore $15 trillion over the next 20 years so he can solve it? Yeah, I, I don't think so. one 900 Just again, remember Alfred Veniger took 60 years before the scientific community was like, oh yeah, no, maybe you were right. When scientists say the science is settled, that is uh, particularly dangerous. Notice no one ever says the science is settled about, you know, E equals MC squared. No, no, one, question, no, one, no one says, oh, gravity? Yeah, the science is settled. And it's only about controversial political issues where they say the science is settled. And when someone says that, some red flags should go up because it's probably not. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, I just want to talk a little bit about what's going on at Berkeley. Um, I'll be honest with you. I'm like, <laughs> these universities, like I, I feel sad for everyone there. Like the whole, the kids there bore me. The, 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 it's the adults that bothers me. And whatever they're doing on these campuses across the country, they're just burying themselves in irrelevance. 
And honestly, the sooner the entire system just implodes, the better for everyone. Jack is six and a half months old. Uh, just yesterday, he clapped for the first time. He claps. It's the cutest thing in the world. But I'm hoping by the time he's 18 that this, is, this doesn't work like this anymore. There's no more college. Or you can just do it online or whatever. Um, so we've talked a ton about colleges. You hear everyone talk all about it. I want to play some clips here of Ronald Reagan and how he dealt with all of this when he was the governor of California. So I got a couple clips here I want to play. The first one here is when he announced his candidacy for governor in 1964. He made like this 45-minute video, and uh, this is just one part of it. But this was the beginning-ish of some of the nonsense uh, at Berkeley, and he made it a part of his campaign. And, and here he is again in his opening uh, announcement, 1470. Back at the turn of the century, we embarked on a master plan of education. It was truly a bipartisan effort above political rivalry and differences. Its principal architects were a Democrat assemblywoman and a Republican assemblyman. Believing in that plan, Californians taxed themselves at a rate higher than any other Americans to build a great university. But it takes more than dollars in stately buildings. Or do we no longer think it necessary to teach self-respect, self-discipline, and respect for law and order? Will we allow a great university to be brought to its knees by a noisy dissident minority? Will we meet their neurotic vulgarities with vacillation and weakness? Or will we tell those entrusted with administering the university we expect them to enforce a code based on decency, common sense, and dedication to the high and noble purpose of that university. That they oh will have gosh, the full the, support of all of us. Stop there. As long where, as they Where are the adults today? Where are the adults today? Where are the adults today who are going to step up and say that? Right? Enough with your neurotic vulgarities. <laughs> right? And talk to the adults there. That say, listen, would you start running this school with a little decency and common sense? Just get, get it together. Don't cave to the noisy dissidents with and their neurotic vulgarities with your weakness now this is when he was announcing his run for governor now i want to play some clips here from when he was governor um one of these clips you may have heard before it's it's a clip from a history channel documentary and i've, I've heard it a million times and i was like man i want to hear more from that i want to hear the whole thing and i did the best i could to find different clips from different shows and things uh, of that same press conference he was giving. But I can't, I wish I could just find the whole thing. And I'll, I'll keep looking. But in the meantime, here are some, uh, some uh, clips of him in 1969 talking about Berkeley. And listen how fired up the governor got. 1471. Suppose that the issue is that on the campuses, you who are adults, you who are entrusted with those young people and their guidance, have a responsibility to make it plain to them from the very beginning that you yourselves do not tolerate the kind of conduct that has led to the burning of Wheeler Hall, that has led to two murders on the campus of UCLA. You've created an atmosphere on the campus where listen. no one wants to listen. No, you no are a liar. Listen to. Now, don't you talk about political speeches. Don't you make a political speech of that kind. And you know, it's funny because... Who are you? Would you let me finish my I would like to hear who you are. I this gentleman was... Okay? I would, happy now. You happy bet now. I'm happy, and you bet you won't right. say anything that will surprise see, me. And I'd love to see you discuss this openly before the people of California. I am discussing it know, openly. And we'll know that you can't run a university by bayonet. You cannot do it that way. 
if you would allow yourself to listen, you would have a lot of people who would be showing some compassion, some interest in nonviolence, some interest in order. If you would speak out against the use of firearms and buck, if you will, that 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 this the people responsible for that should be removed. If you would say Mr. that instead of example of cutting down the escalation, you can bet we'd have a lot Mr. Wapsey, when were any of you, when did any of you appear before the students? When did any of you stand up at Sproul Hall on Thursday and beg them not to go down there? Over and over Those people told you for days in advance that if the university sought to go ahead with that construction, they were going to physically destroy the university. Now, why did you negotiate many times? Negotiate? What is to negotiate? What is? University is a public institution. That's right. But the university, its own community, and for the community of Berkeley that live around it. All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. Boom, and he gets up and walks out of the press conference right with that lie, which is pretty ball. I love the clip before that, though. You got the reporter, whoever he is, saying, hey, man, what, what's the deal? What's the deal? It's all this violence. Uh, you know, if you would just stop with that, then everyone would be okay. And Reagan's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where were you before these students decided to burn down the building? Where are you telling all the students to calm down a couple weeks ago? Which, if you did, then we wouldn't need to be calling in the National Guard to keep, uh, keep the peace. Where the heck were you when that when they were starting these riots and protests? Nowhere, which is what got us here in the first place. So get out of here. You got pretty fired up there. It's pretty awesome. All right, one last quick clip. This is him in uh, 1966. It began a year ago when the so-called free speech advocates, who in truth have no appreciation for freedom, were allowed to assault and humiliate the symbol of law and order of policemen on the campus, and that was the moment when the ringleaders should have been taken by the scruff of the neck and thrown out of the university once and for all. And that is Ann Coulter. Remember, there's a whole backstory here, but Ann Coulter was going to speak on Berkeley. They said no, and then the school said, "Okay, you can come back, but here are the demands you have to that, that, that we require. And one is you have to you can only speak in the afternoon." You can't tell anyone where it's going to be until the last minute because we don't want the protesters to shut down the building and all this stuff. Like, give me a break. And Ann Coulter said, you know what? Fine. Fine. I'll meet your stupid demands. But here's my stipulation. Anyone who heckles my speech is expelled from the school. Anyone who heckles me, tries to shut it down, causes trouble, they're expelled. And that's when the university said, no, 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 we can't have that. Constant caving from the adults college campuses across the country no self-discipline to go back to reagan's uh you know announcing his run for president no self-discipline no decency no common sense no respect for law and order and we wonder why this is happening now it's one thing for the kids to behave this way now obviously they're old enough to be in the military right they're adults and we should expect more out of them yes but the actual adult, like 50, 60, 70, the ones running the show, they should be held to much higher standards. But they're even more pathetic than the kids. one 888 But no one, well, maybe Trump can start speaking up a little more like that on this. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
later. One last thing on Berkeley. <laughs> we'll put that put it aside. Uh, I want to echo Jonah Goldberg here and, and share this just so you when when you hear this you can cringe uh, just the same as as I do. Uh, whenever I hear a reporter, someone on the TV, say that Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, is the home of the free speech movement. No, no, it's not. What are you? What are you talking about? No, real quick, can I share one thing about you about Berkeley before we go on? Oh, let me share this. This is crazy. So this is just a good story about how California is just a money pit. And everything's totally out of control here. And every, the bureaucracies are crazy, all the rest. So the University of California system, we have uh, three tiers of our higher education system. We have the UC system, which is at the top. And then we have the Cal State system, which is the middle. And then the community college system, which is uh, on the bottom tier, right? So the UC system is currently run by Janet Napolitano. And there was an audit done of the UC system. And the auditor came back. The state auditor came back and said, I've been doing this for 17 years. I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. Just that the whole thing was such a gong show. It was so unprofessional. They 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 were hiding information. They were stealing things. It was like horrible. It was the horrible, horrible experience auditing the UC system. But check this out. So in the UC system, uh, let me see if I can remember these numbers off the top of my head. There's in the president's office. So this is just the administration in the president's office. 1,667 employees. So we'll round up a little bit. 1,700 employees just in the president's office. 1,700 has a budget of $655 million. Now, there's 10 UC schools, 10 of them in the state, and there's 250,000 students. Okay? So now, just to compare how crazy that is, the Cal State system, they don't have 1,700 employees. They have 700 for twice as many campuses and twice as many students. So they have twice as many campuses, twice as many students, but basically half the employees and a third of the budget. Now, this is getting complicated. It's hard to talk numbers over the radio. Let me, let me simplify it even more. I compare this to Florida, okay? The Florida state system. Florida state system has 10, uh, no, 12. I think 12 universities, which is more than Cal California has. California has 10. Florida has 12. Florida has about 100 to 200,000 more students than, the, than in their system than California does. California, again, in the, just, this is just the president's office. 1,700 employees in the Florida state president's office. You want to know how many employees they have? 64. <laughs> so California, 1,700 Florida, 64 employees for more campuses and more students. And the budget, California, this president's office budget, 655 million in Florida, eight, eight million. So for, 1% of the budget and a fraction of the number of employees, Florida, they're able to take care of more campuses with more students than in California, right? So California, way more money, way more employees for way less work. Incredible. Yet still, 
Got to raise tuition. Oh, got to raise tuition. We're out of money. Got to raise taxes. Got to raise tuition. Give me a break. You guys are so corrupt. All right, anyway, got off topic. That's more of a California story. But just put that in your back pocket. So anyway, back to Berkeley. So Berkeley, uh, oh yeah, it's the home of the free speech movement. And people point that out because, oh, look how ironic. We have this, uh, you know, people shutting down speech at a place where uh, it was the birth of the free speech movement. No, it was not. That, 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 that's, that's like saying Berkeley is the home of books. What are you talking about? So I want to quote Jonah Goldberg. He says, Demosthenes, the Athenian uh, rhetorician, the speaker, the, the, the Greek speaker and champion of liberty, pointed out around 355 B.C. that the residents of Athens were free to praise Sparta, but the Spartans were banned from praising Athens. 1689, the British passed a law guaranteeing freedom of speech in Parliament. 1689, a century later, French revolutionaries incorporated into law the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which established free speech as a universal right. Two years later, the Americans ratified the First Amendment, which guarantees that the state shall not infringe on the right to free speech. Roughly Roughly a century and a half later, 1948, the United Nations adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which says that everyone has the right to freedom of expression and opinion. And I mentioned this all, Jonah Goldberg says, I mentioned this all because every time I hear or read about the pathetic state of affairs at Berkeley, journalists and other commentators insist on pointing out the irony that all of this is happening where the free speech movement was born. Now, the movement for free speech is thousands of years old and runs like a deep river across the landscape of Western civilization. Think, I mean, think, think about it. It's, just a, it's a funny example of how people say things without thinking. What a funny thing to even say. Berkeley's the, the home of the free speech movement. So this was in the 1960s, right? There were a lot of colleges in the 1960s. Did they not? I mean, first of all, a lot of colleges in the 60s that didn't have the National Guard called in on them. Did, did they not have the freedom to speak? Of course they did. People could say anything. From 1776 to 1960, colleges existed where you could say things. Right? I mean, you could always say, I mean, it's not like it was, there was, oh, you couldn't, you couldn't speak until Berkeley came around. The Berkeley protesters. Oh, now finally we have the freedom of speech. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? I, I, I don't know how else to put this. Like, that, that's so silly. The only thing I can think of is it, it comes from people who want to lift Berkeley up as someplace that's important. That's, that's the only thing I can think where that comes from. Right, we got to lift Berkeley up as something important, in order to make the opinion of the students there today important. Right, so, so we got to create some sort of historical importance, so that we'll listen to what them and what's happening there when they're really not important at all. They're not. This is not. I got an example here of how vapid these college kids are this this to me is the perfect metaphor for the depth of the protesting college student of today and of the 60s eight yale graduate students eight yale graduate students have started a hunger strike in front of the uh, president of, of the university's house and they're protesting for better union benefits 
right? So they're going on a hunger strike. They're not going to eat. And they're handing out flyers to people who come by. And the flyer says, it says a bunch of things, but one of the sentences is, we invite you to visit us. Instead of eating your lunch, sit with us and lift our spirits. When one of us cannot continue, come take our place. Huh? It's a symbolic hunger strike. This is a symbolic hunger strike. You know, the kind where you can still eat. It's the kind of hunger strike where you eat when you're hungry. Which is kind of like me in 17 minutes when the show's over. So I guess I'm on a hunger strike until I eat again. <laughs> what is, like that is a perfect example of how millennials and how academic people want the benefits of suffering without any actual suffering. Right. They want they want praise me for going on a hunger strike. Oh, I'm I'm not I'm not actually gonna go on a hunger strike. But but tell me how wonderful and brave I am for going on a hunger strike, but just so we're clear, like I'm not really doing a hunger strike. They want all the praise of Gandhi without having to do any of the things that Gandhi did that made him deserving of praise. They want to be Martin Luther King Jr. without the intellectual or spiritual foundation of Martin Luther King Jr. They want all the credit without doing anything significant. Gandhi said he would fast unto death. That's what he said. Those are his words. I will fast unto death. And some of the people that joined him in hunger strikes did. They would they hunger strike for 60, 80 days. I will fast unto death. These college kids are fasting unto their hungry. <laughs> I think they're going to go grab a bite to eat and then come back and do it again. <laughs> a joke. one 900 So when you see these college kids and their, their grievances, uh, just, just think of that story. The symbolic hunger strike. <laughs> All right, I want to come back. We'll, uh, we'll end on a nice note here. A little inspirational note with a story of, uh, well, I'm not going to tell you who. That's the point of the story. It's next on the Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is... Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders, I'm glad you were here. Thanks for uh, spending some time together. Let's end on a nice note here. I want to end up with this little story here. True story about a young boy grew up in a poor home in the Midwest. His family, they were farmers and then uh, struggling business owners. Business never really went well. And this young man was 16 years old and he wanted for Christmas more than anything a pair of leather boots, but not just any leather boots, leather boots with metal toes. The old steel toed boots had to have them. Absolutely had to have them. I imagine it's like out of Wayne's world when he's looking at the guitar in the window. You will be mine. Yes, you will be mine. 
except he was 16. He didn't have any money. So he went to ask his parents, but he was smart. And he's like, listen, I can't just go ask my parents for boots. They're not going to give me boots. I got to come up with a good story. I got to come up with a story about why, why, what's in it for my parents. It's an investment. So he's like, oh, I got it. He delivered papers. And he made the pitch to his parents. Mom, dad, these shoes will help me deliver papers faster, especially in the snow. And I'll be a better paper delivery boy and make more money. We'll see, son. Is that promising? I don't know. Had to wait all the way to Christmas morning. Sure enough, under the tree. There, there they are. Pair of leather steel toed boots. Oh, baby. Walked around in these boots, proud as punch. Loved them. Never took them off, slept in them. Now, he's 16 years old. What would a 16-year-old boy do with a pair of steel-toed boots? Especially when around other boys. It's very simple. Kick things. So he's with some friends. And he noticed a piece of ice in the middle of the street. Now, a normal person would see that ice and just keep on walking. But a normal person doesn't have a pair of steel-toed boots. Because basically, he has invincible feet. Right? I mean, he's, he's like a superhero. I got invincible feet. I got steel-toed boots. Are you kidding? I can kick anything. So with invincible feet, a 16-year-old boy can't resist the temptation of kicking a piece of ice. So he runs up to it, winds up, kicks that piece of ice absolutely as hard as he possibly could. The sharpest pain he's ever felt in his entire life shoots up his leg, up his side, up his whole body. In this piece of ice was a horseshoe with a giant nail sticking out of it which went right through his boot and right into his big toe. He falls on the ground screaming for help. Of course, his friends run away. <laughs> they run away. His friends bail on him. 20 minutes, he's on the ground screaming. Someone finds him. Pick him up. They bring him to the doctor. They get the nail out. Ooh. Hirsch is thinking about it. And they lay him in bed. Now he's 16. Back then... When you're 16, it's time to make some life decisions. Today, when you're 35, it's time to make life decisions. But back then, when you were 16, it's time to figure out what you're going to do with your life. So college was out of the question. His family didn't make enough money. Uh, doctor, lawyer, I don't know. He wasn't a good student, even if he did have the money, going to school to be something like that. So what is he going to do? He had two weeks to think about it because he couldn't move. <laughs> so when he was in bed, he thought, about the things... What do, what do I do that make people happy? What do I do that makes people happy? And, and where do I have the most fun? I wasn't at school. But down the street from his house, there were some children's art classes. <coughs> when he healed up, he decided, I'm going to be a cartoonist. This young boy's name was Walt Disney. A rusty nail in the toe was what it took for Walt Disney to decide to be a cartoonist. 
And I wonder what would have happened to him if it wasn't for that rusty nail, if it weren't for that difficult time in his life, which gave him the opportunity to stop and think. And I think how quickly we go through life without stopping and thinking, like Walt had to do at that moment. And I also think about how much we avoid having a rusty nail stuck in our toe. But maybe it's those times that also give us the most clarity. So if you have a toe stuck in, uh, a nail stuck in your toe right now, maybe you can use it to provide some clarity in your life. Like You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.